Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name is Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Louis Theroux, Nancy Strang and Aaron Fellows, co-founders of the celebrated documentary makers Mindhouse Productions, about new series Forbidden America and what's coming up from the company next. While all three media internationals Louise Pedersen, Banerjee Wright's Kathy Payne and Fremantle's Jens Richter discuss this week's London screenings and the state of UK programming on the global stage. Louis Theroux is famed for working with Michael Moore on TV Nation, his own series Weird Weekends, interviewing celebrities including Jimmy Savile, plus a string of one-offs exploring American subculture, its penal and healthcare systems, Scientology and more. The celebrated documentary maker set up his own company, Mindhouse Productions, in October 2019, together with his wife, the TV director Nancy Strang and long-term exec producing partner Aaron Fellows. The trio has since agreed an output deal with BBC Studios, which is distributing Mindhouse's latest show, Forbidden America, plus a string of others. Theroux and Fellows, who are the company's creative directors, plus Strang, its director of development, spoke with Clive Whittingham about the programme, their particular brand of filmmaking, and where they intend to take Mindhouse next, including moves into factual entertainment, formats and drama. What is a Mindhouse show? I mean, we all know the sort of distinctive interviewing style and what they look like, but for you guys, what's what's the quintessential show from your production company? For me, I suppose it's programmes I'd want to watch. I mean, clearly they're in the factual space, most likely, although we haven't ruled out working in drama. It's knotty, uh, intriguing, psychologically captivating subjects, you know, that could almost be handled a different way tabloid subjects you know in terms of their impact and and um the the level of in of sort of enticing intrigue that they excite but handled maturely like with, with you know which has sort of gone back to what i did from the early days of weird weekends you know it was obviously subjects like the porn industry or or, or, or religious cults or the far right and neo-nazis these are all kind of um very toothsome kind of subjects with a broad appeal. But if you bring a little bit of nuance and intelligence to it, you can elevate it and make it a, a really, a, a really kind of, you know, it's a responsible and mature, but totally engaging piece of programming. So that goes across the board from the, we did a four-parter about the White House farm murders, uh, which were identified with Jeremy Bamba. And um, we've done a snooker series, three-part Gods of Snooker. I mean, which on one level is a sports story, but on another level is a story about, it's a it's historical story, but a story about personality, you know, complicated personalities like Alex Higgins and, and Jimmy White. And, you know, so within that template, like lots of different kinds of things can thrive like documentary singles features series formats but i think that the dna that runs through it is 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 sort of a a kind of mature and intelligent approach i'd love to sit in one of your uh, development meetings are they are they as far out as i imagine is it just like think of the most extreme idea we can do and how would we do that is that what what are these meetings like to sit in you tackle that one nancy i would say it's a very sort of actually eclectic mix from you know dark subjects which we're always drawn to sometimes very dark subjects and you know um a christopher biggins reality show that's a aaron's always trying to shoehorn biggins into um into our uh 
them and chat. No, we, we work, we like working with talent too. And that's something that, you know, so we are always trying to find, you know, subjects that work with talent that we like and, and subjects that they want to do, you know, talent that we've been working with and are working with now. And I think we, we are maybe attracted to um, the darker subjects. And, but what I like is that we also have a kind of, a, you know, a popular factual sensibility as well. In some way, we've actually hired a, you know, head of popular factual. So it's quite a broad mix. It's just stories and characters that excite us, you know, and, and obviously the people at the heart of the stories are always the most interesting. Once you've, um, once you've decided where you're going, what your target is, how do you go about getting the access? Because obviously the, the far right American uh, Forbidden America doc that I watched this morning, the first episode in the series, those guys hate you and, and your industry and, and everything you stand for, right? Main, mainstream media is, is part of the, the enemy. So how do you go about getting them to give you the time of day? That must. How does that process work? Uh, I mean, with with that one specifically, you're absolutely right. There was a lot of there's a lot of distrust towards mainstream media and the BBC and Louis Theroux is is very much is very much that. It, this has been it's been a long road, and I'd say that we were very well researched, and so that we knew that when we were going to approach people, we needed to know what we were talking about, and we needed to know all the sub uh, all the kind of subjects and the themes um, inside out. So when we did get to approach people. Um, we could just demonstrate that we had a, a thorough knowledge of the subject matter and that that was the way to get people engaged because I think what they're used to um, within the far right movement in, in America are kind of news people who just want to go in and they ask very kind of basic questions, questions which they're kind of used to. And I think um, our producer went in and just demonstrated, look, I know you've said this before, I've read this thing that you've done before, it would be a blog or a video that they've read. And so it was just about engaging in conversation. And then being very transparent about what we wanted to do and be very transparent about Louis generally. So sending them videos of previous documentary he's done. So they knew exactly what um, they were signing up for. So it was being very explicit, being very transparent and yeah, being honest about what we wanted to get out of it. And also doing the sort of obvious, which is casting the net wide. You know, quite a few people obviously say no. Being tenacious, you know, it took... But the best part of two, two to two and a half years to bring that project to fruition. And we have a track record of, you know, having made programs in similar areas, having done them responsibly. And I think we have an idea of how it works and what it takes. But every stage of that process needs careful handling from the research to the first contact to the recce, to the shoot itself, the, the managing of the relationships through the process right up until the show goes out and afterwards. How Once you're actually in front of these, these subjects, talk to me about the the, the interviewing technique you've obviously you're, you're well known for for your style which is almost i don't know feed out enough rope and and see what happens i but i mean one of the guys did object and and sort of kicked you out of his garden for, for not very much at all as far as far as i could for, see but well yeah yeah there's a about ca- the technique of yeah. interviewing these people well, because you've raised... So the character who kicked me out was called Beards and Beardley. And yeah. I'd found footage of him delivering what looked a lot like Nazi salutes. So clearly when I arrived at his house to interview him, I asked him about those. And um, he took offence and threw me off the property. You know, these subjects, there's this tension between asking the questions that you you know that you want answered, but that, that will possibly ruffle their feathers, right? And even, you know, jeopardise the access. And then, you know, also, wanting you know to keep the keep the thing moving right so for so so you don't want to come on day one and say like 
aren't you really just a, a bunch of Nazis, you know, like, uh, and then and then they get annoyed and then you haven't got a programme, right? So clearly you have to slightly manage. But at the same time, I, I really don't like withholding, like, the tough questions. It, feel, it feels a bit cheap. Uh, so I do try and nail my colours to the mast fairly early on, right? But, but, but hopefully not in such a way that it's going to blow the shoot. You'll notice there's a build. You know, you want the, the programmes to have a build as well, like from the, the initial engagement where I'm sort of saying, like, so t- tell me how you define yourselves. Like, well, that's how, you know, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And then there's a reveal, like almost a striptease as the layers are peeled away and it becomes clearer how far to the right they are, how extreme they are in, in some of their attitudes, leading to a sort of climactic showdown. Where do, where are you guys on the idea of, of no platforming, that these people, their views, the majority would consider them abhorrent and quite dangerous. They can radicalise people. You, sh- you shouldn't give them the, the airtime and the opportunity to put them those across on on mainstream media what where do you stand on that you know it's a good question it's something we thought about a lot this word platforming covers a multitude of different examples of of covering a subject you know i just i think the bottom line is there's a difference between platforming and just doing good journalism on someone right like you can't compare inviting someone to speak at the oxford union or to appear on any questions to doing a documentary about them where you interrogate what they believe you spend time putting together a responsible piece of work. So quite clearly, that's where I, you know, where I feel I'm at the latter end of the spectrum where we're doing, you know, we have the tools to do a, a solid job of, of revealing what people really are. And you obviously, uh, this was a BBC project, majority of your, your projects are, are for BBC. The BBC uh, is, is making a big play on, on impartiality at the moment. I wanted to read you a, a quote from the BBC's Director of Editorial Policy and Standards, David Jordan, recently, who said, uh, flat earthers are not going to get as much space as people who believe the earth is round but very occasionally it might be appropriate to interview a flat earther and if a lot of people believed in a flat earth we would need to address it more than we do at the present time isn't the bbc educate inform and entertain isn't it doesn't the educate bit of that sort of contradict that well, all I would say with that, with you know, if there are enough flat earthers that it would feel worthwhile making a Louis-style documentary about them, you know, it's a kind of fringe belief. But if, if there's a sort of fear, I think it's the difference between, um, as Lou was alluding to, inviting someone on Newsnight who's going to tell you the Earth is flat. I, I, I presume that's not what he meant by that. And that it's about sort of interrogating those beliefs in a kind of more sort of documentary style. Yeah, I, that's what I took David Jordan to mean I, a lot of people picked up that comment and I think they took him to mean oh well then we need to have more programs saying like our beautiful flat earth on BBC One <laughs> but with David Attenborough I don't think that's what he meant I think what he meant was we would have to educate the public in the fact that the earth isn't flat and spend more time doing that is that what, Aaron is that what you thought yeah what I thought. exactly I, my, my read of it was that if um, a certain point of view becomes very prominent or a lot of people hold that view then you don't just ignore it and hope it goes away you have to address it in some way who's the audience for for your shows who do you want it to be who who is it actually but all of my humans humans Right, but, but not not to say that we wouldn't. Some of the higher uh, higher uh, mammals, like <laughs> even an octopus, 
I left. I left myself so open to that. <laughs> I'm just being silly. You mean, do you mean all Montez shows or Louis shows specifically? The, the Louis show. Let's say the Louis shows. The, the Louis shows is an interesting one because our understanding is uh, the audience is really varied. We know it skews quite young, and there's a diverse audience for it. And we know from just the publicity and marketing around the series that Louis has to take part in. It's really varied, so he can do all of the BBCs, i.e., Five Live, Radio Four, One Extra. Radio 1 he will cover all of those and the online publications there's a real range all aimed to different people so I think one of the reasons um, it's so interesting for us to explore such varied subjects is because there is an audience for all of the things that we're covering the style the content the audience feels absolutely ripe for multi-part Netflix series to me is that is that is that as we look at like I say company three-year plan you know bringing back something like weird weekends but but for Netflix sort of big budget go anywhere is that is is that part of the strategy yeah we i mean we've we've definitely talked about wanting to you know we we've now that we've kind of been been around two years and obviously that that's been interrupted by the um global lockdown but we feel like we've really sort of got a lot of momentum now we've got shows across the sort of uk linear platforms as well as some streamers we've got a few productions in development now for more global streamers so our ambitions are to do more content for American streamers and for the sort of international platforms and I, you know as Louis alluded to potentially we, we are sort of interested in sort of looking at potential sort of scripted ideas too there are a lot of stories that we're really interested in but yeah I mean Netflix we, you know we'd love to get something are we talking like standard biopics that sort of route for you for your scripted or would it go more sort of left field than that I, I would imagine yeah a bit more yeah not maybe not so much the biopic more sort of story based well, ultimately one of the one of the joys of Mindhouse has been everyone likes a good story and what what's been fun for us is to approach stories in lots of different ways for lots of different people whether it be you know we're doing a feature for Amazon about KSI we've done the series with Alice Levine for, for Channel for looking into sex in Britain. Uh, we've looked at the Bambus for S- Sky looking at, you know, retrospective crime. And what they've all got in common is there's great stories to be told and we've been enjoying telling them in different ways depending on who the platform is or who, who the broadcaster is. And I think that's ultimately what we're going to continue to do and make more things from, for a variety of different people we've not yet worked with. As you, as you said, you sort of launched the company and then the, the world fell apart. How, how was that? Has it been basically two years of, of development development meetings and Zooms and waiting to get going. How, how did you guys cope with that? Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, it was obviously, it, it, it came at probably the, <laughs> the worst possible time for us because we'd just sort of been around a few months and we're about to sort of literally send people away on an aeroplane to America to film sort of his first three-parter and had various other things that looked like they're about to take off that then couldn't. But, um, you know, after a couple of hairy weeks, it, 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 sort of, it worked out all right. You know, we, we got off, you know, first commission with Sky Documentaries that was not a Louis commission and and then other things started happening obviously Gods of Snooker which was very you know was, we were able to do in lockdown because it was so archive heavy and just interviews and obviously Louis um, was able to sort of although he couldn't go off filming but then able to do Grounded the podcast series which I think we really enjoyed it was a different way of doing working for Louis and for us so um, in the end it was okay and, and and we were lucky enough to get other commissions in the middle of it you go, you mentioned you, you've, you've done series for Channel 4 and obviously we've, we've spoken about BBC BBC is facing pretty stringent cuts to its content budget, it looks like, um, license fee frozen and, and things like that. And Channel 4 
potentially being privatised. They're two of the sort of riskier commissioners because they're public service broadcasters. Do you worry that that will be affected by by either of those things? Well, you know, we, um, we've got really good relationships with all of the terrestrial channels. We've got good relationships with the, the SVODs and different digital platforms. And all we can do really at the moment is just keep on talking to them. I, I don't think we've really thought about what might happen if something happens. We're working with Channel 4 on a couple of things at the moment. We're working with the BBC um, and we'll continue to do so until, until noted otherwise. I mean, we've not had kind of strategic meetings about what might happen we're just enjoying carrying on as we're carrying on at the moment and also people want shows that do well and are highly regarded like not to blow blow our own horn too much but you know like that first episode of uh forbidden america got 1.6 million uh on the night but probably more when you add in consolidated and then it's been top five on iplayer all week you know basically People will. My experience is, if like if you base if you're delivering high quality programs that millions of people are tuning in for, then there's always someone who wants to work with you. We sort of still sort of cherish the existence of the BBC and Channel Four, and I, you know, there's not many linear platforms left. Which you know, for independent small independent production companies, is crucial really for retaining some ownership and also for visibility. You know, they do still get massive viewing figures even with all the competition out there. And so I think you know. Uh, we, we will continue to sort of work hard to work with the BBC and Channel 4 and ITV because, so, you know, there aren't many other channels like that out there. What do you guys want to cover but you've never been able to because people just wouldn't open the door or you didn't get access? There must there must be a, a topic or a person or something that you've wanted to to film or, or do the story of and, and have never been able to. I mean, there's a few. I, I'd say there's still things on our development slates which are real favourites of ours. I don't know there's how much... Biggins again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Christopher, Christopher Biggins is one of them, um, who we are talking to. But there's there's a few series. I don't know how, how much we're allowed to really say, Nancy, about those kind of ideas. But I mean, some of them are, I suppose, people have been put off because they're very controversial, or it's the kind of thing that they would question whether, <laughs> whether anyone would have the appetite for. Or sometimes it's just access is so difficult to a certain subject it's hard to get it off the ground uh, but we've certainly got our favorites which we've not yet managed to get away which we are intent on continuing to push we've been we're all big fans of music and and music documentaries and that's a space that we've been trying to find the right way into and um you know, we've got KSI for Amazon, which is announced, which we're really excited about. Um, and alongside that, would be it would be amazing to get a big legacy artist or like I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna say this because uh, who knows? Um, Brad Pitt uh, is a big fan of Nick Drake, so I want to get I would I would just now trying to figure out how what's the best way of approaching Brad Pitt because we uh, we've had conversations with Nick Drake's well not direct conversations but in the, there's been conversations going on with Nick Drake's management and to get. Brad Pitt, co-pro, Plan B Entertainment with Mindhouse for a big Nick Drake documentary. And for people who don't know, Nick Drake is obviously a legendary folk artist from the 70s who died very young, but is highly regarded. And I think that would be amazing. Are you out there, Brad? <laughs> Did you come out of the... Because the, I've watched, I've, I've watched the, the far-right American Forbidden America this morning and um, came out of it sort of reasonably depressed. I often feel like your documentaries have a turning point towards the end where there's some sort of enlightenment but these guys just seem to double down and entrench even even further the longer the documentary went on and that's kind of that's how the internet works right that's how social media works it seems to people entrench entrench 
did you come out of that depressed in any way? I don't know. Is that the, is that the right word? Well, <laughs> How did you I mean, feel I, I appreciate you watching it. Like, if I'm honest, maybe this won't surprise you. We don't aim to leave our audiences depressed. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the outcome I'm looking for. Like, I, I definitely feel as though um, we're aiming to sort of make compulsive, um, thought-provoking documentaries and programs where you leave kind of maybe reflective and 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 you you're you're sort of thinking about the strangers of a world where i mean as you'll know from seeing it this is a world where people do uh, live streaming of themselves going about in the streets mm. and then people are donating money in real time to get them to do outrageous stunts like the, to to get the youtuber in question to do provocative things and they're playing messages and music from a speaker that's around the youtuber's neck so it's it's an utterly bizarre sort of dystopian futuristic tableau right that that you see so my takeaway, I, I mean, I didn't feel like at the end of it, I suppose, in terms of making the program, I, I felt as though um, I, I I had a kind of uh, a sense of almost vertigo about the culture that we're in. Like that, that, but I've, I sort of, it's not that different from what I've been feeling incrementally over the last two or three years, ever since, almost ever since uh, Trump was elected, right? That felt like a tipping point in the culture where I was like, wow, we seem to have, there was a, a fork in the road and we've sort of gone down the like the weird path where a reality TV show president is in power. So next to that, exploring and anatomizing the epiphenomena of Trump and Twitter and social media and technology, it didn't leave me any more or less depressed or confused or whatever it happens to be than I was already. Like I, I, I sort of maybe it speaks to some detachment on my part, but I just I, I felt actually stimulated and um, engaged by by the, by the weirdness of it all. Where does it where does that pass lead? They think that that Nick guy is going to be president. Is that is it is is that the direction we're heading? Having taken that fork, or is it recoverable? Uh, you know, that's the weirdness of it. Like, does it feel as though it's completely out of the realms of possibility? No, it doesn't. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I there is there's a there's a great podcast that uh, came out a few weeks ago called "The Coming Storm" by Gabriel Gatehouse on BBC Sounds, and he talks about how of all people, Jacob Rees-Mogg's father, William Rees-Mogg, predicted the end of democracy as a result of the internet. So, you know, that was back in the sort of the early '90s or the mid '90s. But uh, I, I look, I I have a hard enough time wrapping my head around the present let alone the future okay I'll, I'll finish off with a future question then um three in, in three years time what's what's mind house going to look like what do you guys want to have achieved where's direction of travel for you i mean difficult to say what's happening three months from now at the minute i appreciate but uh where, where are you guys going three years well as we've kind of alluded to I, I think it would we are interested in seeing if we can go down a drama path to explore stories which lend themselves to that type of approach um i think we certainly want to be doing more in the states we can't kind of announce exactly what it is yet we've, we've got our first u.s series commission which we're making at the moment and i think we'd we'd want to work more with u.s uh, platforms and broadcasters and ultimately trying to make big interesting popular documentaries for a, a range of people and an oscar don't you've got a feature <laughs> at the moment that look i reckon it could could get a best documentary oscar but, uh, well that, that is true <laughs> that's a good point but and, and also the other thing i suppose uh, because we've brought in barnaby coughlin from label one the other route which we are pushing at the moment is popular factual and formats um which again we've just we've got broad tastes we'd love to get um a returnable series of some kind it'd be amazing we'd love that yeah Louis Theroux, Nancy Strang and Aaron Fellows talking with Clive Whittingham. 
Forbidden America is among the shows that were being highlighted this week by distributor BBC Studios as part of its annual showcase sales event, which again took place virtually this year. At the same time, however, the London screenings set up by all three media international, Banerjee Riots Entertainment One, Fremantle and ITV Studios got underway for the first time as a formalised physical event with buyers from all over the world descending on the UK capital to get a glimpse of the territory's hottest new shows and catch up in person with distributors they may have only seen via Zoom over the past two years. In a moment, Banerjee Wright's Chief Executive Cathy Payne speaks to Nico Franks and Fremantle Chief Executive of International Jens Richter talks to Carolina Kaminska about the company's involvement, programming slate and the state of UK content on the global stage. But first, all three media international chief executive Louise Pedersen spoke to me about how the screenings developed amidst the pandemic, gained favour over MIP TV and the growing influence of streamers on the marketplace. So Louise, welcome. London screenings has been going for a number of years now, but the decision to sort of formalise the event via all three media international, Banerjee, Entertainment One, Fremantle and ITV Studios, that only happened in 2020 amid the pandemic and that led to last year's virtual event. So um, this year it's the first one that you're going to be back to physical screenings and meetings. How are you feeling about that? I think we're all feeling really excited about it. I mean, I think the team here are excited and, and, you know, I think buyers will be glad to get back. It's just that networking thing. Our our business is, uh, of course, it's about buying and selling the best shows that, you know, you can sell and you can can find internationally, but it's also about networking and exchanging ideas and that kind of off-the-cuff conversation about, you know, how a market is developing or, you know, a new trend that I think it's very difficult to get on um, a Zoom call. Um, And I think online, as we've all talked about this a lot, online's got its benefits. I mean, everyone turns up on time, you know, you have a nice, tightly, scheduled meeting to discuss a very clear agenda but you know the kind of free-flowing conversation and the kind of uh, you know the, the gossip or picking up a bit of intelligence um around some of these live events I think is is something that we've all missed I mean at the seat 21 at content London I you know I found out probably more than I'd found out in the last year just from bumping into people just about you know how people were viewing the market and things like that so we're excited to get back I think we all joined up because we felt that we wanted to make the the experience as easy as we could for buyers so it allows us to all sort of liaise about when we're going to hold our different screenings to sort of put together more of a schedule so that you don't find that we've got a big clash between you know distributors so it was about getting together to organize a more buyer-friendly event um it comes at a very good time of the year i think for all of us um you know lots of people have got new content that they want to launch it's been six months since mipcom which is probably the you know the other big event for uk distributors so it feels that yeah the timing's right we wanted to get it more organized uh buyers like coming to london okay there's no glass of rosé on the beach but um you know london's got other charms and um so we just thought we all need to join up a bit more and get ourselves organized and it's also been a chance for the smaller distributors to arrange their own screenings and events as well which we welcome so it's about showcasing you know the best of all of our shows the the best of largely British shows but also uh, the best of the kind of giving all of the UK distribution industry the the chance to take part in it. 
To what extent was it the pandemic, the, the mother of invention, I suppose, for the event? As I say, it was already happening prior to the pandemic. Yeah. But as with so many other things, I guess, within the industry, it's seemed to accelerate the move towards you joining forces, as you say, and, and putting on yeah, this. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, to be candid, we were all thinking, you know, looking at MIP and perhaps the pandemic gave us a chance to really look at the investment that we were making, the cost of attending a market versus the return that you you were getting. And I think being able to use the pandemic to take a bit of a step back and kind of do that analysis and look at how we wanted things to work going forward in terms of our market strategy and event strategy. It just gave us a bit of a chance to sort of take a breath and think, okay, which ones have have worked best for us over the last few years? And even though the previous London event was a slightly more opportunistic kind of series of of screenings based on the fact that buyers were in town and and, and for for showcase, um, I I think, you know, the last couple of years, we've seen it working super well and we've seen it generating quite a lot of of revenue. And, you know, the, the costs of going going to MIP versus the the revenue that we were generating made the whole London event look a lot more uh, attractive for us. As you say, there's a plethora of new distributors, smaller ones, um, joining the lineup this year. Um, but there does at the same time seem to be a kind of a swell of interest once again in, in MIP TV in Cannes. Everybody's obviously hoping that the improving situation uh, in, in France and the UK, hopefully, yeah. is, is going to continue. But budgets are a concern. Yeah. I mean, and they are. I mean, I think for us, what I don't feel that we really, I, I mean, I, look, the Read Me Dem guys do a great job. We, we really like MIPCOM. It comes a very good time of the year for us in terms of our sort of program deliveries. Um, I feel for, for MIP, if some of the conversations that we've been having around perhaps focusing on the formats or MIP doc, those move forward, we might send people in a, a lot more of a limited way. But, you know, the days of those sort of big generalist markets feel, well, they don't feel like, they don't feel numbered. It feels like there's only room for one of them, one big one. The rest of the time, you know, some of the more specialised markets, particularly in a landscape that's got, you know, so complicated in terms of how many buyers there are and how many platforms there are and, you know, working with different territories, it feels like those more specialist markets are the way to go for us. So it's been a couple of years now experiencing yeah. these kind of virtual sales events as we're returning to physical. Have you got any kind of sense as to, I guess, the profitability of doing one versus the other and, and how the dynamics between the two are playing out and the extent to which you'll continue to do things in, in a virtual environment versus uh, physical? You know, I think virtual will be part of the mix now for us going forward for, for, for a number of different reasons. I mean, it isn't just about cost. You know, yeah, yes, we say a lot of money on on marketing and, and travel during the pandemic but I don't think you can sustain that uh, you as we talked about you you lose your contacts you you, you know you, you, it's hard to develop new relationships over zoom you, you can't have the kind of relaxed conversation that you can have on a sales trip or at a face-to-face event with with a buyer where you get you know an extra perhaps an extra level of uh, knowledge or intelligence about what, what's going on in the market so I think you know there, there's a still an absolute place for for travel and for markets and and it will be a huge part of of what we do but I think some events you can do virtually we're obviously looking uh, I'm sure the industry is but all three as a group is looking at sustainability and and you know our carbon footprint and and those type things and I think being a bit mindful of that in terms of planning your travel um, is something that we're going to be looking at so I think you know a, a zoom call where you might have hopped on a plane somewhere you know for one meeting might feel 
a bit more mindful of that these days. And and also, I mean, even for the the London screenings, because we we record our events uh, and so that people so we can control the time, so people will come in and you know they'll screen basically a kind of mini documentary, wish um, a show uh, an extended show reel. We'll be making that available online the week after for people that can't come, and that again is is a huge bonus. So it's a, that's a very good example, I think, of of using the live event and then following it up with a, with a virtual event to reach as many people as we can. So what about the demand for UK content on the global stage? I think the most recent export report from UK Indie Trade Body Pact uh, indicated that there was increased sales to the US, but overall a sort of a, a slight dip globally. How do you account for that? And have those dynamics changed as far as you're concerned since that report? You know. Yeah, well, I think we all took a dip in the pandemic, not actually because... Well, certainly we did it all through Media International um, in that sort of first year, which was was 2020. So I imagine that's responsible for it, for, for, for most of it. And that dip wasn't really about demand for programming. Um, there was a lot of demand for, for, for tape, uh, but it was about the fact that we had that production hiatus, you know, between the March and the August, September, broadly speaking. So some of those shows that we'd been factoring to come in and to, to deliver in 2020 pushed out into 2021. So obviously we didn't have revenue from those. And then, you know, other areas of the business like formats, because again, production shut down. So we didn't have any international formats in production for those six months either. So I think that was the single biggest reason for the drop. For us, we had a really good 2021. We bounced back very strongly. We had a lot of programmes that had been delayed deliver. And 22 has started incredibly positively and markets very buoyant. Talking to one of the sales team yesterday and, and, and he was saying, oh, we've just had our busiest January ever and it. It does feel like the market is very strong. Um, so, yeah, lots of demand, lots of competition for shows that, uh, you know, uh, are perceived to be very appealing internationally or that have rated well in the UK and continued opportunities for the catalogue. So it feels pretty good at the moment. Is that across the board? You talked about formats there and, and drama obviously faced its own particular challenges. So, you know, across the board, how, how are things playing out? Pretty, pretty well across the board. I mean, formats we've had, you know, the Traitors, which was this uh, the Dutch format that IDTV uh, made for RTL. Um, you know, that uh, is now in, I think we launched that last year and it's now being produced or about to be produced in 12 markets. So it's a very strong first year for that format. Shows like Naked Attraction format-wise, rolling out into ever more territories uh, which is great so formats are going very well interesting conversations going on with some of the studio SVODs about local formats um, which was something that we hadn't seen before so you know when conversation with HBO Max on a couple of, of those uh, so that's a change premium factual has been a very big growth area for us. I mean, strategically, kind of 18 months ago, we thought we need to get into this space. Um, hired Rachel Job, made a big investment pot available to her and her team to invest. And that's paid off very well. We're doing well finding very good co-production partners in America. And that shows like Fever Pitch, who's get, who is 
Elaine Maxwell. Um, so that's been a really good growth industry alongside those kind of long running factual entertainment uh, shows that we love, like Doghouse and, and Gordon, Gino and Fred. And in scripted, you know, we're lucky we have a, a fabulous lineup and a very diverse range of scripted shows. Probably one of the things that we're known for is those quality detective shows. We launched a couple of new ones last year, Annika and Dal Gleish, and they've both done very well um, alongside Midsummer, Band of Orc, those the, the, the more uh, long running ones uh, in the catalogue. And then we've got some, the, the Tourist and Trigger Point, which have just launched recently in the UK. Tourist, you know, very, you know, Jack and Harry Williams, twisty, turny, high concept, fabulous landscapes, great cast, thriller, uh, and you never quite know where it's going to end up, which is just brilliant. And we've done incredibly well with that. And then Trigger Point, which I think is, you know, very commercial, pacey, ITV, high octane drama. So those two have, have performed really well. So, you know, we, we've got a really good range. And then, yeah, and then at sort of the other end, uh, you've got All Creatures Great and Small, which uh, has just developed you know brought a whole new audience internationally to that kind of classic book adaptation and uh, just works very well in the family space some interesting points you raised there um formats being sold to studio led svod services yeah. a, a new phenomenon you say yeah i mean i think a, a new phenomenon for us you know there, there's lots in the press about the fact that they are working locally and commissioning locally and i guess a year ago we we saw that was being sort of mainly led by scripted but for us many more conversations than we were having six months ago um, and I guess their strategy again is to bring great local content across the board to their subscribers in that area so they're not commissioning them as a centrally they're commissioning them regionally if that makes sense. One of the topics of conversation in the industry has been about these US studio-led streamers kind of warehousing their own product within their their streaming services and and therefore changing the dynamics as far as the availability of of US content for third parties and therefore potentially opening opportunities for distributors like yourselves. Yeah, I think it is a factor. I mean, first of all, I think you know, in the UK, we, we produce some fabulous programming. So I think the programming has got slightly more international in terms of the kind of production values and the fact that, you know, some of the casting that, that's no, who are known globally. So I think that sort of gap that you had perhaps sort of 10, 15 years ago between UK and US programming has, has closed a bit. But but I think you're also right that um, we're finding buyers not being able to access the, the US programming in the same way and, or, and perhaps finishing their output deals um, with majors and, and then looking to other countries to, to, to fill the, the gap. Premium Factual, you mentioned as well, the acquisition of, of Silverback by All3 Media a couple of years ago now. That was that was 2020. So um, that's obviously something that, that's feeding into your, your strategy there. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, natural history, we're really thrilled to be working with the Silverback guys. I mean, they're just so talented and it's incredibly exciting for us to be really in business with the kind of best in the natural history game. But it's a new area for us as a distributor. So absolutely part of building up that premium factual expertise and resource was because um, they came into the group and, and we want to make sure that you know we're properly uh, prepped for, for doing those deals. And given that you're part owned by Discovery as, as well and Discovery has Discovery Plus, which has been growing rapidly over the past uh, 18 months as well, you know how much of that is a, a sort of contributing factor in your drive towards that area yeah discovery 
of course, it's it's a contributing factor, but the primary factor is just a you know an increased demand across the board for 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 that high end premium factual content. I mean, I think Netflix slightly uh, led the way um, in terms of some of those really uh, sort of groundbreaking premium factual shows. And and I, I guess what we're looking for for all of our customers, including Discovery Plus, are either some those long running factual entertainment brands that can build up an audience or that subscribers love. Um, actually, Escape to the Chateau is a, is a good example of that, but that goes to Peacock. But it, it's it's it shows that really you know offer are made for a bigger budget, uh, offer something exclusive. Uh, something you haven't seen before, lots of good access, perhaps some footage that you haven't seen before. So they feel like they're telling a story that you think you might know in in a, in a different way. So, yeah, I mean, look, the Discovery Plus are great partners. We've done some really good deals with them. We have a great relationship with them. That whole kind of expanse of Studio Westwards has just led for, for more, de- more demand for factual programming. And I guess the picture is going to become even more complicated in in a few months' time when Warner Media and Discovery merge as well. Any sort of sense as to you know the the ripple effects for all three media international? No, I I, I think at the moment you know uh, the, the 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 deal and various regulatory approvals are, are being worked out. So uh, I have no inside track on that. I'm afraid. <laughs> Um, what about some of the other things that you've been developing? Um, Midsummer Murder is one of your most popular detective dramas and, and, and longest running as well. You, you've launched a, a fast channel for that, I believe, just in the past few months. AVOD is something that's been growing for you as well. Are you planning to do more yeah, of that? Yeah, it is. I, I, I looked at the numbers. I think AVOD and fast revenues grew 72% for us uh, last year, which is a, you know, a massive a massive increase. Um, and we're projecting, I don't know, about 40% increase again this year it's a really exciting area for us and there are lots of opportunities at the moment so it's going to be interesting at the to start with it was very much a, a sort of big library play so you know we, we we put as much content up as we could on as many platforms as we could over the last year we've been able to see what's worked where that's informed our strategy around launching our own branded channels like the Midsummer Murders Fast Channel. And that's a strategy that I think will continue in 2022. It's a very good way for us to uh, manage our brands in that space. Uh, but it's a different business for us as a distributor because you're having to deliver those channels. There's, you know, you're having to program them and you're having to work with the platforms to promote them. So it's quite a different skill set, but it's really exciting. It's not going to work for everything. But I think for the sort of top 15 20 brands long-running brands in our catalogue it's a really good opportunity i think what we're going to see over the next 18 months in that space will also be the move for some of some of those platforms particularly the bigger ones into co-productions pre-buys slightly more of getting in a bit earlier and just bringing the conversation back to buyers so how, how do they then react you know someone who a, a broadcaster in, in the country which would normally be buying that program suddenly sees that it's available free to view on an AVOD service. Does that change the the conversations that you're having? Uh, Not at the moment, because it's about managing the rights and the windows and the exclusivity. It's going to be interesting to see how that develops over the coming years, really. You know, if if either partner wants exclusivity, then there'll have to be conversations around price points. At the moment, it's helpful because a lot of the AVOD and FAST deals are non-exclusive. Okay, and so coming back to the London screenings, what about the shows which uh, you're going to be highlighting, I suppose, at, at the event? And, you know, why are they the right 
shows for the market right now? Oh, good goodness me. We've got a really good range, which I think is always, again, is part of our strategy in terms of just uh, having things that will suit everyone. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, the range goes from cont- sort of period drama with a twist. We've got the Confessions of Franny Langton from Drama Republic, which is based on a book by Sarah Collins. Um, it's a, a fabulous queer love story uh, mixed with a kind of crime murder investigation uh, set in Victorian England. Um, So we're really excited about that. We have a a really sort of quintessential but absolute treat of a a series, an ITV series from story films called The Thief, uh, His Wife and the Canoe, um, which is about uh, the guy who who peddled off, peddled his canoe off into the sea uh, and and everyone thought he had drowned. And in fact, he and his wife claimed on the insurance money and moved to Panama. It's a really, it's a real jewel of a a series. It's, it's, It's a fabulous kind of story. You can't believe that anyone could do it uh, and it's really there's some fabulous performances by Monica Dolan and Ed, Eddie Marson um, and it's beautifully directed by Richard Laxton so we're excited about that obviously we're giving a push to the tourist and trigger point I've already talked about them we have new series of kind of classics that people love like Doc Martin with obviously bought the DRG catalogue and there's a new series of that coming up as well as new Broken Wood Mysteries which does very well for us and we're launching a really big show called The English uh, which is being commissioned by the BBC and Amazon starring Emily Blunt which is a kind of western revenge thriller which we're also really excited about so in the scripted space there's lots and there's something for everyone I think in the format space uh, The Traitors is a big one you know we've just sold This Is Your Life uh, into Seven Network Australia so that's a good chance to, 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 to relaunch that. We've got the new Gordon Ramsay show, Future Food Styles, um, where he kind of you know, picks out the next chef. So that'll be good. And so a fabulous, yeah, so we've got a really, you know, fabulous lineup of formats, some uh, new shows and some tried and tested favourites that we think are ripe for a, a reboot. Obviously, it's been a, a tough couple of years for, for everybody. The industry's felt the squeeze across the board. It feels like, and it sounds like, from the shows that you're describing, that production has found a way through the supply chain of of, of programming is is sort of coming through again. But for buyers, it is still you know they've they've had a really kind of tough squeeze in in terms of their economics. So in terms of the kinds of deals that you're doing, is that kind of changing? Is there greater flexibility that's required to get some of these deals across the line, or is it a case that because there are so many buyers kind of proliferating in particularly in the VOD space that if, if it's not a good enough deal for one person you just go somewhere else I mean that's a very complicated question but um... I mean there's a few points I think you know we we what we are and we want to be very respectful of our long-term partners who have been really good supporters of some of our long-term brands so we will always try and make a deal work when it went with them where it's particularly if it's around continuing a show that that they've been partners on for many years and and you know we we do have offers to take some of those shows other places and and we'll do our best to try and make it work with the original partner so yes there's a degree of flexibility and I think loyalty there from from our side both scripted and 
factual are getting you know increasingly more expensive to finance particularly high-end factual particularly natural history we've talked about that and we are running investment cases to support that investment so on new shows where we've had to put in a significant amount of money or a very high percentage of the budget price is is a pretty big factor in that as well as you know whether you can window it and house and whether you can do a number of different deals within a license that the period that we have the rights so in in that situation yeah the market is very competitive louise pedersen from all three media here's kathy payne from banerjee speaking with nico franks I joined Banerjee at the start of COVID. We then acquired Endemol and did the whole collective consultation, integration, formed a new distribution company as such, and the whole team has not been together yet. So we're looking, I'm looking forward, we've got our colleagues from our international distribution offices coming to London. So it's exciting. At the beginning of the pandemic, so March 2020, I think we just had uh, the London screenings before everything kind of really kicked off. Mm-hmm. And that event was just growing and growing in terms of its identity. Mm-hmm. And obviously the pandemic has kind of, you know, it all shifted online. In terms of what the London screenings mean and where they fit in the calendar, can you tell me a bit about that? I think we first, can't remember when we first actually actually attended but in t- I know that Endemol did it in uh, March 20 they were in the process of you know, the, the Banerjee acquisition and at that point I had been at Endemol but I was actually on Garden Leaf at the time and joined Banerjee then and we had they've just grown it's just a a good time a lot of buyers come into London to to see broadcasters it was really the timing was driven because it was around the BBC showcase and then they'd come to London and you used to see lots and lots of broadcasters, platforms, all the individual salespeople did. And so then we made it more into let's do a presentation. And I do think over the last few years, we're seeing the growth of more bespoke markets, festivals, where you meet with people. And, and also, as we've got bigger and bigger and you have people in territory, your market needs are, are different. Because if you're in Australia, you don't need to come to London to see someone who's based in Australia, if that's where you sell, it's great to come to London or Cannes or go somewhere once a year just to immerse yourself in the industry and also to immerse yourself in the Banerjee wider group. Uh, But it's changed. And how is it impacting what you do at MIP TV? So what are the plans there? We made a decision back in 2019 that we don't exhibit at MIP TV. So uh, of course, we'll be at MIPCOM and we'll have a huge presence at MIPCOM. But even before then, from about maybe 16, 17, 18, we had none of our team from outside of Europe were attending our MIP TV. And for ourselves, it was more, if you're a salesperson and you look after Italy, Spain, the salesperson was saying to us, I would rather go and have a week in territory with my buyers rather than going to Cannes at that time of the year. So of course, Cannes important, all markets are in, uh, important for us at MIPCOM. But again, with the evolution of the way we work, we won't be exhibiting. So tell me a bit about some of the highlights of the catalogue at, at the screenings. Well, at the, at the screenings, we will be focusing on both our scripted and unscripted. And I think in the scripted, we 
this is a bit of a bumper year because we have a lot of the premium drama that is delivering and a number of those programs will have already gone out such as Screw, Chloe which has started, you know, Peaky Blinders, Grantchester, they they will Good Karma Hospital or our Strong Returning. Our highlights in scripted and, and so many, you don't want to forget all your children, but to mention a few, we have SAS Rogue Heroes from Kudos for BBC, which has been announced and you would have noted that we pre-sold it. We have a partner with Epics in the US and we have many other partners on board that we'll be announcing uh, shortly. So we, we, we have that. We also have a series called Then You Run, which is also from Kudos and that for Sky in UK, Germany and Italy, which is based on a book called You, which is kind of a dark crime humour caper, I would call it. It's, it's When I watch it, it's very dark, but it's also very funny in, in part. So that's brand new, the first time anyone will see anything of that. And then from Banerjee Studios France and Kappa, we have Marie Antoinette, and that's for Canal Plus. So they're, they're three in amongst many other shows we'll be referencing. We've got Valkyries, the TF1, which is uh, in delivery or in post now, for example. So we've got a wealth of product, but they're our three scripted highlights. And then on the unscripted, we have a number of new formats that will be at the that will be doing their launch. Obviously, Limiters Win, which has done very well here in the UK on ITV from Hello Dolly, where the the international partners on that uh, that's getting a lot of attention. And obviously, you would have seen it's been renewed for season two, which is great, fantastic performance for ITV. And then we have Starstruck, which is a remarkable for ITV. So we've got that coming we've got language of love which is finishing its run on channel four has done really nice solid numbers they're three and we've got a whole list of, of others that are coming through and on scripted there you mentioned a, a mix of english language and non-english language shows mm-hmm. obviously squid game is such a great example of a show in the non-english language that took the world by storm do you think that kind of phenomenon is restricted to south korea or do you think there isn't really any reason why a show from anywhere couldn't do the same thing. Well, yes, I think good ideas can come from anywhere. I do think that genre pieces work well you know, for, for streamers. And in non-English, I'd also reference shows like Lupin, which has done very well. Uh, I really, really enjoyed that. Also, Call My Agent. It started off as a small show and, and that's gone everywhere. They're both French. For us, Bron. Filmlance, and which did very, very well. And ZDF are involved with that in and with distribution of the finished tape, but then all the adaptations we did of that. I think that you know there, there will be those ideas you catch the imagination. Squid Game to me was a little bit in that you know, dystopian world of, of the future, a, a little bit with really strong human stories, you know, human relationships. What does it take? If you're going to survive the choices you make who you sacrifice some people can't sacrifice there are all those very strong human survival themes that we see through but I think that good shows can 
pop from any country. No doubt the streaming platforms open the world to seeing a a lot more non-English outside of maybe public broadcasters or specific slots. And that's been great. How are you seeing the remake market change in terms of demand for scripted remakes? Yes, it's definitely grown over over the years. You know, we've had, I mentioned that Bron, the original Swedish bridge. Well, I know we've done over 10 remakes of that we've done now. And we also had a Dutch crime series, Pinoza, a woman who has to take over the crime business to save a family once her, her husband comes to an untimely death. A universal theme where that can be repeated. That's We've done many remakes of that. And certainly the interest has grown, in particular in maybe some of the markets that are opening up to wider storytelling. India, for example, if you go back even 10 years ago, it was pretty much a lot of the scripted was very, had a very domestic flavour to it. It was the more the, what you more call the classic traditional Indian scripted storytelling where, you know, they just do remakes of all the big IP that they've done so much. So I do think there's, there's that ability to go, well, this has worked, I can remake it and, and it can travel. So we have a, a lot of demand. And then we have certain English, I mean, the Israeli drama that's been, you know, very, very well known for being remade. And that just continues to to grow. We've got Nordic shows that we're remaking for streaming services and that will be remade in English. So it's a, it's a constant market. Is there a market for international versions of unscripted shows? So for example, like the US version of Lego Masters, that yeah. could potentially be sold to lots of different territories. Oh, yeah. How about, you know, the Indian versions per se, or is there yeah. demand for that? Yeah, there's a, well, there's different markets. You'll have, say, with Lego Masters, it started off in the UK and Australia was really the market that blew it out to be a bigger show. So the Australian tape will be sold alongside, you know, with the English tape and with the American tape and with the New Zealand. So all the English languages can be sold together. And in some territories in Europe, they'll also take other, like in, in Italy, they will buy the Spanish version or, or the French version. But those markets that, you know, the English language version travels the most widely and other versions will be acquired specifically for smaller groups of territories. But that's just in general with the market for that language content in any case, you know, whether it be scripted or unscripted, those markets that tend to to take that. Because you have a lot of your domestic fare that is produced in in non-English languages that will be in the domestic market and maybe travel to regional markets or markets that have a close affinity. And then you have the, the premium or the bigger ideas that will go to a wider audience. And what's um, the approach to fast channels at the moment? Because I know at Content London at the uh, back end of 2021, a lot of distributors were talking about the headache and the opportunities that yeah. Fast Channels calls. We, we've been a really early adopter of Fast Channels. You know, we've been in this business for a good couple of years. I and mean, we started off with doing self-publishing and licensing to own and operated self-published channels a long time ago. I think we were Pluto's first major supplier, as an example. So we do. We do run a number of Fast Channels. Our biggest one has been Deal or No Deal in the US. Uh, so with the Fast Channels, you're looking for markets that, a large and really recognisable franchises and, and as they're ad-supported and ad-revenue, you know, driven, you're looking for those that are large and can drive a, a solid 
CPM. So we have a number of new fast channels that are launching. We feel that we've learned so much from all the publishing we've done over two years. You have to use a third party to program the channel and, and the refresh rates. We've learned a lot about that. And they can be, if it's your channel that you're operating rather than your licensing content to someone else who's operating channels, and we do both, you just need to be set up to do it and understand the costs because the costs can be significant but once you set up a channel once you then can publish it on many different platforms because all the fast channels are really non-exclusive so we we are launching uh, a number of new fast channels they're all programming brands or there there is one we're doing with uh, we have a a number of generic channels that we self-publish on youtube and we're looking at, at migrating some of those over there on they're themed into particular subject matters whether it be a crime or documentary or, or so forth and as those big avod players evolve are they interested more and more in exclusive programming and are they you know evolved enough to kind of be paying similar license fees as their SVOD competitors? Well it's a completely different model than the SVOD and they're really focusing on franchise library content so it's they're not commissioning we're not commissioning new product for fast so all the deals we're doing are non-exclusive. I think what will happen, and there are some platforms where you must use their ad sales service and some platforms where you can use your own or a combination of both. And as you know, we're really now focused on when we have anything in the in the Avod published business or the fast channel, how our ad spots are selling through, what's our sell-through rate, how do we improve? Because that, that's the reason you have them there. I do think that like all this area with self-publishing, you need to have a really good audience proposition. You can imagine when you go on, you know what it's like, sometimes people say, I put on Netflix or I put on Amazon. I'm going, oh, there's so much to watch, but there's nothing I want or I don't know what I want to watch. If you're going into an Avon world where there is so much more, you you need to be something that the viewer is going to come to and know. And, and that's why I think really strong, recognisable names and brands, franchise, will do well. Focusing back onto the UK, obviously we're mm-hmm. seeing a lot around potential changes to both the BBC's and Channel 4's funding models. In terms of your perspective, in terms of how that could affect or disrupt the pipeline of programming coming to Banerjee, um, how do you feel about that? Well, I think as you would say now, Group CEO, Marco, you know, we're, we're big supporters of the BBC and Channel 4. And I always say this personally, being a non-British person, I think the BBC is a gem. There is no service like that anywhere in the world and the breadth and depth of programming across TV, radio and online. I say this to my friends all the time, you don't understand how good the BBC is. You really don't. And I don't believe anyone should take it for granted, whether it's the viewers or the government or or so, or so forth. And no doubt, like in all big organisations, they can improve processes, make it more streamlined, look at their look at maybe their administration cost overhead. But what you don't want it to do is affect the, the program budget. They'll be made, you know, they'll be making choices, but they also 
everyone has to have content and you want that content to be innovative. You know, they're both BBC and Channel 4 or the UK in general has, you know, there's, there's a reason why so many of the successful formats that travel have initiated in the UK, you know, that high level of risk-taking with, with certain programming that, that comes. Looking to build a new audience, you know, it's a, it's a different objective. So we will see what that, as this moves forward, as what actually happens with Channel 4 and, and the BBC, how that affects. But no doubt if they get squeezed on their budgets or there's a lot through licence fee being freezed or, or whatever happens, it will they will have to make choices. But it's very early for us. We're not, that is not affecting now other than the general of the last few years. Production costs have gone up. A lot of that's driven by COVID protocols. Obviously, we get better at COVID protocols, but they haven't gone away yet and they'll be around for a while. And just the demand from all the new platforms, the, the costs of talent and so forth. And is there a potential scenario where companies like Banner J Rights would have to kind of invest more and to kind of top up the budget to keep it on a certain level? Well, I think that's been happening with Scripted for quite some time. Investments have, have definitely gone up. And all big companies like Banner J for all our big competitors is certainly, you know, we, we do investments in concepts and ideas and, and, and pilots that where we're sharing that risk and, and involved you know, with broadcasters. That's a, a very frequent thing that we do. And just finally, how do you see the position of British programming kind of evolving around the world as local programming obviously is in demand and non-English language programming is in demand? Yeah, I think in all markets, non-English content will travel and have the audience that it has. But English language programming does have a very big audience. Uh, our audiences, because they've been exposed to more non-English, don't feel like I hate it when they used to call it foreign. What's foreign about it? It's just a, in another English, but it used to be treated as though it was kind of foreign to them. It's kind of like when you go to another country and you experience different food. There's a different culture and different ways of storytelling. So, you know, the, all content, the audience decide what's right for them. I think there'll be continue to be a big demand for British content. It's not going anywhere fast. Uh, uh, all our British talent, they try to uh, poach them. Uh, they're always in demand for, from overseas. It's a great place to produce. Look at the investments going on in studios here. There'll always be a market. British factual entertainment and, and non-scripted you know, documentary, it's always been a high standard. It, it travels very widely. And uh, with the scripted programming, whether it be that more kind of what I call the super domestic and to call the midwife Grantchester type program until the premium drama like SAS Rogue Heroes, there's a demand for that product. So obviously there's demand. I think where there's been less demand for product over the last few years in the scripted has been not as much American, uh, American scripted. And we see that everywhere in all the markets, you know, England, Australia, but also that product of course is on their own services where much of the American premium drama, a lot of the scripted is now tied up in owned and operated SVOD services by those, uh, you know, Peacock, HBO Max, et cetera, et cetera. There's a demand from buyers to go, I need product. Where else am I going to get that product from? Kathy Payne from Banerjee speaking with Nico Franks. Here's Fremantle Chief Executive of International Jens Richter talking with Carolina Kaminska. 
To start with then, do you want to talk a little bit about the main changes that you have seen occurring in the distribution business over the last couple of years that might result from the pandemic or from things like streaming or, or something else? So what are, what are the main changes that you've seen? That's a very good question, Carolina. There are tons of changes over the last couple of years and um, not necessarily caused by the pandemic, but accelerated by the pandemic, right? The pandemic was a catalyst in terms of um, changes in our industry. A couple of main trends, when you look at what we do on the distribution. The, 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 there's still some traditional, a lot of traditional distribution business to be done, but it changed to the point that, you know, in the past, it was a producer securing a commission with a terrestrial broadcaster, the distributor would join in with some gap financing, financing gets completed and off to the races, right? And production gets done and later on distributor sells. Now, we're in an environment where over the last couple of years, the budgets increased dramatically, right? Um, therefore, the funding needs increased dramatically. And that led to a situation where we get involved much, much earlier. That's one thing. The other thing is um, you have, over the last couple of years, you have a lot more players in the market. You have a lot more streamers that came in. Linear broadcasters are not linear anymore. They all have their VOD extension, their iPlayer version, right? Invest heavily into that as well. So there is, on, on the demand side, the demand side is increasing. There's more need for great shows. And at the same time, when you look at it from the audience perspective, there's so much more offering, so many more platforms with so much more programming. It's really, really hard for the audience to choose and find shows that they want to see. So that also makes a change in kind of like what kind of shows do we produce now or want to help finance now versus like five years ago. You know, five years ago, a nice drama, a nice reality would be good, right? In the current market situation with an amazing amount of choice for the audience, you really need to think about what do you put out there? What can break through? What can be recognized? What are the ingredients? Is it the cast? Is it the IP? The exotic location that becomes a character of the show? The drama that is based on true stories that are completely insane, you know, like factual beats any fiction, you know, that kind of drama. And um, so those are the stories. So it's a long way to say the kind of shows, the content, the stories changed, the budget scenario change because there's so much more demand for great cast, great crews, great studios, everything became more expensive. And those two factors mean for us, we have to get involved much, much earlier. We want to be at that table when we talk about ideas. We want to be at that table when we say, okay, this is the kind of show, does that make sense? For whom do we want to do this? What's the audience profile? In which territory does it sit, that audience, for this specific show idea? Where can we produce it? What's going to be the budget? Um, who are going to be the best people on, on the team? And then also what also changed over the last couple of years, if you want to tell a story, a big premium factor maybe or drama about strong female characters well you like to go with the female director as an example you know it's like um, the whole way of producing um, finding voices you know it became a lot more authentic and real you know it's like well five years ago you know like uh, drama about female protagonists you know, might have been produced by an all-male team the whole process is much more thought through in a very positive way you know this is all in it's this is a great trend this is a great world because ultimately we produce much better shows, right? And um, so for us, we are up for quality, the ideas, 
the ingredients, the team involved, you know, the whole package. And then we get involved as a distributor really, really early on. And then we um, we help to shape the show. We help to find uh, identify the commissioner. We help to find co-producers because of the driving costs, right? It's very often bringing co-producers on board early is um, beneficial in terms of creating the right story, but also getting more funding to the table. Um, we are always looking for more innovative new ways of, of, of funding, you know, like uh, where do we get the money from? So that's about show creation and us getting involved. And then another big part that changed quite dramatically for us is once we are engaged in the show and once we have a show finance and it's in production and we believe this is going to be awesome because we have all these ingredients that I just talked about in this show, it's going to be phenomenal. During that production process, then we have to think even more about who is our perfect audience for this show and does it sit and now comes a big question does it sit with local broadcasters with regional platforms or with global platforms right when you look at it from a pure practical point if you don't have a good thought process on sales strategy and you just start selling oh i can have this deal opportunity in france and i can do a deal in poland or whatever you know like you're selling individual territories for a show that might sit much better on disney plus europe or hbo max right so the whole sales process changed drastically because you really have to think about where does it sit and whom do you want to address first in terms of buyer um, so the it's a whole more orchestrated process and um, for people like us with 10 sales offices on the ground you know we interact then very closely with our teams on the ground and we literally decide discuss sales strategy on each and every individual show so the going to market who's your client changed also drastically over the last couple of years everything changed basically so speaking of, of budgets which have obviously been rising dramatically yeah. you talked there about new ways of funding can you talk a little bit about some of the new financing models that are emerging to to help tackle these these rising budgets sure um so there's one funding model where you know you have a good quality show where you think this is mainstream factual volume as an example where can we produce it cost efficient you know so there is still some good good show and program ideas that you can produce at a controlled budget level and whenever that is feasible you do it right um then with regards to financing um more premium shows you know you have multiple ways you know it's like um, either you have this one commissioner and you go in with along as a distributor and put in really high gap financing so the gap needs increased dramatically over the last couple of years that would mean we as a distributor take on a lot more risk then there are a multitude of new co-production models you know because if you if you have a commission by, by a local broadcaster your co-producer in today's world could be another broadcaster it could be a regional platform or it could be a global platform deal right um, and when you look at the world of the stars the Disney pluses the HBO Max Amazon Netflix most of them are to an extent flexible with their models as well you know they do have needs for certain regions for the Europe feed for the Latin American feed you know so you not necessarily always always have to talk about global rights which gives more opportunity for everybody involved right more flexibility um, and then um, for some shows and we did that as well um, on some factual shows that's maybe the most extreme version of a funding model we fund 100% of the show we say this is an amazing show the budget is we can control it we believe there's a real market for this show we just finance 100% we don't even wait for a commissioner to come on board we did that um, two three times um, over the last couple of months that's a very exciting model can be very rewarding um, obviously that's the biggest risk you can take so in terms of um, and then obviously 
um, if you want to, you could also get funds on board, you know, like um, third-party money, investment ma- money. You could get sponsorship uh, money on board. We did that for some shows. You know, obviously there, the show has to fit 100% to the sponsor. And that's a very complicated process. But for some shows, that makes perfect sense. And um, and then for some other shows, like some factual, um, it could be that um, you could get some foundations interested because they are just behind the course. You know, it's like saving, I don't know, saving water, environmental shows, you know, like um, there's some funds you could go to as well. And with the streamers, how how does it work with rights? You know, we're seeing some of these global platforms wanting to retain or snap, snap sure. all of the rights to programs. Um, so what issues does that create for distribution and how, how do distributors go about retaining those rights? Well, it depends, you know, it's like um, if you have a commission with a platform, very often they demand for the global rights, right? But very often they don't, you know, it really depends on the show and um, do they believe this show would really have a huge impact in a specific region and then they really want that region and the rest of the world, they're flexible or do they make want to make this specific show a juggernaut for their global release, stay and date all around the world and, you know, with a maximum impact and believe that this is a truly global piece of IP. Um, we love working on both. Uh, we love working with all the platforms and we, we are currently in production for all platforms. You know, we do another season of Mosquito Coast for Apple, we do for Disney, we produce for Netflix, literally everybody, right? Um, and, and that's a business that we're super proud of and we want to do more. And then, as I mentioned, besides taking global rights, very often there are also situations that they are on board from the beginning as commissioning partners, but they are only interested in Latin America or certain parts of Europe, you know, or only the US. That can happen as well, right? It really depends on the show. And then it's on us to, to build together the model for the rest of the world. And then very often we have platforms coming in at that second or third stage. You know, it's like um, shows that get produced for a local broadcaster in the UK or in Germany or so or Italy, you know, and then we're looking to sell it or co-produce it. And um, and then platforms come on board either for pre-sales or to co-produce, you know, because when you look at it, one trend at the moment, for instance, as an example, um, you have all the platforms coming into Europe. So when you look at the individual European territories, either there are productions quotas already in place that American streamers have to spend certain money in certain European territories, and they could be interested to co-produce for that territory. Or um, in some European territories, the quotas are not yet in place, but there's live discussion and they will come most probably in all European countries. And a smart buyer for American platform, you know, doesn't want to wait for the last moment. So they, they invest into European content already now. Plus, you need that offering anyway for your European audience. You cannot just come in with American product. You need to serve quite a lot of European product on your global platform coming out of America. We did quite a lot of deals with global streamers for Europe only. And that is fantastic. So there's more flexibility in the market, clearly, also with regards to the streamers. And then another trend talking about global streamers is, and that's a positive trend for us, most of the global streamers are now, they have their own studios. Um, HBO, it's Warner, Paramount Plus, um, you know, it's like all the studios, but Sony are linked to platforms. That means in today's world, studios that five years ago sold their programming to the open market. Now, most of that US product will not be sold to the open market, but will be retained and, and they hold it back for their own platforms. So when you look at it from that perspective, like who provides the open market with great shows, there's a lot less prime American product going to the open market. That's a clear opening for people like us or other distributors and producers. 
do you think that content from the UK is becoming or, or has become something of a replacement for content from the US because that that American content is becoming increasingly unavailable? Definitely, yes. You know, it's like, um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of factors play in, right? I mean, number one is the UK is an amazing hub for creativity. You know, it's like there's, you have this current conversation about uh, the PBS, this, you know, the BBC and Channel 4, you know, should they be privatized, less funding? I mean, it is thanks to those broadcasters that we do have such an amazing talent pool in the UK and, and such a great quality of production. So we have amazing Amazing talent here, great track record here. The language is the common language. That's the, you know, producing in English, you know, compared when you look at, I mean, we 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 are very proud of the fact that we got a lot of non-English shows on American platforms over the last 24 months, right? We got Anna from Italy on AMC, we um, Elena Ferrante on HBO, you know, we had the investigation Danish show on, on, on HBO main channel, you know, but obviously with the English language, you have a bigger reach, you know, like like you can hit it big in America, you can sell your show in a big way to the rest of the world. So clearly English language product is uh, is great. Another factor not to be underestimated, and that's a discussion in the background, does English originated programming count as European on the continent? At the moment, yes, Brexit didn't have an impact. So we all hope very much it stays like that. If that were to change, that could be a problem for English originated shows, okay, British originated shows. Because um, from the legal structure, this European content um, qualifier, it's not connected to Brexit, it's a different side of the law, but there are attempts on the continent to change that, right? I mean, if you're a French producer, <laughs> you'd be very happy if English content wouldn't count as European anymore. So I hope it stays like that. And um, and what we did at Fremantle, when you look at us, you asked like three years ago compared to now, three years ago, we did in English language drama. We, we came to market with American Gods and Salisbury Poisonings and Hard Sun and Beecham House. That being said, the majority of our drama, premium drama slate, was non-English language. We are doing a lot of great Italian Scandi. We're doing a lot of Scandi drama. We're doing a lot of German-French drama. So over the last two years in particular, we took a very clear focus on we want to do more English language drama as Fremantle, okay? A lot more. So when I think about the slate for this year, we're going to have the biggest English language slate ever by a mile. And most of that English language slate coming out of the UK. So we're kicking off the year with Responder, which um, which just launched on BBC One uh, with insane numbers. You know, the most successful Monday night drama primetime in four years. Yesterday, I looked at the non-linear numbers, the iPlayer numbers. They are sky high. So Responder is fantastic. And Responder is also, for instance, a good example of the ideal drama we want to do. It's premium. It's unique. Written by uh, Schumacher, who who, who was an ex-cop, so it's a very authentic way of, of a cop show, very realistic way. On the on the same time, at the same time, it's it's a super entertaining drama. You know, it's not too complicated, it's not too dark. And um, by the end of that first season, um, you almost get to a happy end. I think that's that's a secret sauce in there. So we have it. We kick off the year with Responder. We have Crossfire also in production, both produced by Dancing Ledge, and and that's going to be a very mainstream show. Killy Horse um, is an ex-police lady and. 
the luxury hotel, Hell Breaks Loose, how does she react? And it's going to be a limited mini for the BBC. We have uh, Wrecked in production, Houston film. We have Suspect in production for Channel 4 um, by Eagle Eye. We are involved in that. It's going to be amazing. We have later this year, we're going to do Domino Day, again, Dancing Ledge. Then we are in production of probably the most anticipated drama of the year, or one of the most anticipated drama of the years, this Scepter Dial. Um, Michael Winterbottom directing and Kenneth Brenner playing Boris Johnson for Sky later this year. And maybe we show a little bit in the room at the screenings. You know, it's like people might be surprised. So that's that's a lot of UK drama. Parallel to that, uh, we come to market with a lot of Australian drama. So we have a show called Barons in post, almost finished, um, that is set in the 80s, that is uh, 80s and 90s. That's in the world of surf and some crime and some rivalry. We have rather mainstream show Prime Minister's Daughter. That's a it's a young adult show. Um, and then we have two other shows in production in Australia that's going to be more mainstream. And I think to top it all off, within the next few weeks, we're going to have uh, some shows to be announced from Canada dramas. Um, so we have some in, in the pipeline there where we're working on the shows. Very concrete. We're financed. We're done. We just need to wait for the right moment to announce. And that depends when we have the right casting on board. Um, so the English language drama slate for for this year and beginning of next year is going to be insane going to be fantastic plus our non-English drama, right? We keep on going with that, right? So there's going to be another season of Elena Ferrante, uh, my brilliant friend. Uh, we're launching a show called The King from Sky Italia, um, produced by Wildside, which is completely insane show. It's it's uh, the director of a prison and he runs it as his own kingdom and he does unreal stuff in there and many other shows. So the drama slate for this year, very, very strong. And um, and then, you know, we, we work very hard on factual premium factual um, over the last couple of years because when you look at Fremantle clearly we are very strong in lifestyle and factual entertainment so we're cooking with Jamie Oliver since 20 years we do grand designs we do project runways as a distributor all that but uh, over the last two three years we we really put a focus on, on premium factual and we have now Mandy Chang who joined us at Fremantle she came in from the BBC um, she ran the Storyville strand there um, and she's now leading our premium factual ambition within Fremantle. And um, yeah, you know, we had Guillain launching on ITV two weeks ago, crazy ratings. We are finishing the four-part version of Guillain for Paramount Plus, talking about funding models, right? Premium, high-quality factual, commissioned by ITV, produced by Naked. And then with that development package, we pitched that into America, got Paramount Plus on board, and Naked, our production company, is currently finishing the four-part series version for Paramount Plus in the US. It's a great example of new opportunities in, in this world of more and more platforms and a platform, Paramount Plus investing for US only. We have Planet Sex in production with Cara Delevingne. That should launch later this year after summer. Six-parter, that's a Hulu BBC co-production, Kingdom of Dreams, we are in production, premium, premium factual. That's basically opens the doors to the world of fashion, the industry of fashion. And that is for Sky and for HBO Max. So that those are all great samples of like what you see in the factual world. Premium factual is demand clearly going up across multiple platforms. And these platforms totally open for co-production. And so looking ahead now um, for the rest of the year um, and beyond, what are your key predictions for the distribution industry? <laughs> um, budget's not going down anytime soon. Um, demand's 
stays up. You know, it's like uh, there's going to be very hefty demand for great shows. This trend that many people talked have spoke about already over the last two years that uh, mediocre programming is 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 the one that is challenged. That that will be even more true in the future. So you have to aim really high in terms of quality, talent, um, IP branding of your show because of the simple fact that there's so much out there. For the next foreseeable future, the amount of platforms will not go down. It will go up. You see it like, um, for instance, like uh, Viaplay going into new territories. You know, so there's there's still new players coming to new territories. Maybe five years from now, you know, like there's going to be a little bit more of a consolidation in that market, but not not anytime soon. Platforms to an extent going more mainstream. You know, when you look at platform like Netflix, when they started ten years ago, there were like very often like the first premium shows were were super premium, right? Super super premium, like quirky and unusual. You know, and I mean they clearly went against premium pay in in their initial years. And now as they have good size, you know, they have to go a lot more mainstream because now they want to get the eyeballs from BBC and ITV, right? So they have to go more mainstream. So um, platforms like Amazon, um, Netflix, and we're going to see that with other platforms as well, besides of having a strong offering of premium shows, will also go more mainstream. I think some of some of uh, Netflix's biggest uh, hitters are essentially lifetime series in a way, when you look at traffic generation. Um, so more mainstream, more factual. You do see that drama in general. Drama was commissioned with an eye on linear broadcast, right? When you look at um, the MCs and TF1s of this world, you know, they, they commissioned in the past for the linear broadcaster. And now when you look at the local broadcasters, they're not linear anymore. As I mentioned earlier, they all have a very strong non-linear component to them, their player component. And most of them now are commissioning in the way with a first focus on non-linear. So when they commission drama now, they look at it like, can this specific show work non-linear? Is this a great box set versus is this a great show to go out week after week? So the kind of drama that is getting commissioned is changing as well. You know, um, So there are multiple trends up there. And with, res- with respect to new platforms coming in as well, we're seeing AVOD platforms becoming more prominent and, and the oh, rise yeah. of these fast channels as well. So I guess that, that all adds to that, doesn't it? Oh yeah, when you went uh, around uh, Christmas time, when you walked around London, you might have seen a red bus driving along with a big fat advertising on the side by Pluto TV and that big fat advertising of Pluto TV had Baywatch on it, okay? So there is a Baywatch channel on Pluto. Baywatch is our show. And that Baywatch channel that will go on other platforms in other territories. So within this year, we're going to have Baywatch on multiple fast platforms in multiple territories. So there's Baywatch everywhere. Jens Richter from Fremantle, speaking with Karolina Kaminska. That's all for this episode. Visit c21media.net for all our London screenings coverage from this week and tune in to C21FM to hear new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.